We're going to be in Romans, <clears throat> Romans part two. We're going to be in chapter seven, Romans chapter seven. So if you have a Bible, crack it open to Romans chapter seven. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some under the chairs. You can grab one of those and turn to page 943, page 943. Chapter seven, just so you know, is probably the most disputed chapter in the book of Romans. And, and by disputed, I just mean there's a lot of different interpretations some complicated things that Paul says here. Uh, we believe the scripture is understandable. We believe the scripture is clear about what really matters. But we also would say there are chapters of the Bible that are harder to understand than others. And, and this would be one of those. <clears throat> We're calling the sermon this morning, The Law. So a very kind of attractive, alluring title I'm using this morning, The Law. He's going to explain the law and its role in our life. And he talked about it a little bit already. We've talked about it some He's going to talk about it some more next week. We're going to be in verses 7 through 12 today. And I want to set up an initial illustration that I think will set the stage for us. It'll help kind of set the trajectory for us. <clears throat> but I just want to acknowledge that this is a complicated topic, that there are a lot of commentators out there that love Jesus and love the Bible, but disagree on some of these issues. So I want to just say, I am going to try to portray the, the clearest, simplest essence of what Paul is saying here, while acknowledging there's more to it. If you want to study more, I could give you more resources, other things to read, um, but there's always going to be more to it. It's always going to be maybe a little more complicated than what I'm presenting here, but we're going to try to stick with the essence as much as possible. So here's the illustration. <clears throat> you might remember years ago when you would go to the dentist, I don't know if you did this, but this would happen to me, we would get these tablets that we could chew up, and you would chew up these tablets, and they would color your teeth, and they would brightly color the plaque on your teeth. And so the dentist would use this as an illustration to show you what was wrong with your teeth, right? To show you the areas of weakness, to show you the areas of brokenness and neediness, why you needed the dentist to heal you, so to speak. But those tablets did not heal you. The tablets showed what was wrong. Does that mean the tablets are bad? Does that mean the tablets made the bad stuff appear in your mouth? Well, kind of. I mean, they made you see it, but it was there already. And the law works in a very similar way. Obviously, all illustrations, you know, fall short to some degree. But the law shows us what is wrong, but it doesn't fix what is wrong. Okay? So that's just, I think, a helpful starting point for us. We'll read the text together, and then <clears throat> Paul's going to use a lot of different illustrations. We'll look at some different ones as well. So chapter 7, verse 7, through 12. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So again, to summarize, it's good, but it magnifies the death that is at work in us already. Um, we said last week, and I'll repeat this, that there are two ways in our sin and in our flesh that we react to the law sinfully. The first way is that we say, I hate it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. We run the other way. How dare God try to tell me what to do, right? 
It's a very, very American kind of way to react to the law. Another way that we react to the law that is a little more sneaky and insidious that we have to watch out for because we're here in a religious gathering is that we lie and say that we're keeping the law. We say, I'll be one of the good people, I'll impress God by my law keeping, and I will keep it. And then we start realizing we can't keep it all the way, so we start lying and pretending that we are keeping it. And we forget the parts of the law that we're not keeping, and we just focus on the ones we are keeping, and we judge people by the ones that we're keeping, but we lie about the ones we're not keeping. So both ways are expressions of sin. Both ways are expressions of us trying to save ourselves by our own flesh and our own strength. But neither way actually works. Neither way actually saves anybody. Neither way actually brings real righteousness in your life. One way is openly rebelling. One way is lying and pretending that you're keeping the law. The gospel is a third option. The third option, trusting in Jesus to keep the law for us, motivating us internally to be obedient because he kept it already. So let me pray. We'll ask God to meet us here. As I said, this is a complicated topic, so we're going to ask God to help us sort this out. Let me pray and ask for a spirit. God, we pray that your spirit would meet us here. As you promise us, your spirit comes alongside and opens our eyes. We, we pray that that would be so for us today. I pray for those of us that know you, that you would help us to hear your word and, and respond to it. And for those of us that, that don't know you or are questioning or unsure about everything that, that's in this book, God, I pray for an open mind. I pray that you would give the gift of openness to hear and consider what you have to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we move through the text, the first thing that I think that Paul highlights for us is that the law points out sin. And this is uh, related to the illustration I used about chewing up the tablets that color the plaque in your teeth. The law shows what's wrong. It doesn't fix what's wrong. It just says, here's the standard of right, and therefore you don't measure up to that standard of right. It, it shows it. It points it out. I want to go back and lay the groundwork for why Paul would start with this question he does in verse 7, where he says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So why would Paul even ask that? Well, the reason he would ask that is because he keeps pushing law over into the register of people living in sin. And so there were rumors going around about Paul all the time. Jewish leaders would run into a town where he was preaching and say, don't listen to him because he's saying the law is bad and he's saying that we shouldn't trust in the law and he's saying that we shouldn't lean on Moses in the Old Testament. He's rejecting everything that we were taught as Jews to believe and hold dear. And so Paul has to thread the needle here and say, I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm just saying it can't save you, right? And so if you hear just part of what Paul says, you'll be confused. And so this is one of those times where it's really important to pay attention. And I would say, as you're wrestling with these issues yourself, it's helpful to go back and read everything he says and read it quickly so you can get the feel of all of it, right? Read all, just read all of Galatians together. Read, go back and reread these chapters that we've been kind of going through piece by piece and get the whole feel. Because Paul will sound like he's saying the law is bad. And so they're saying, wait, you're saying the law is bad? And he's like, well, no, the law is not bad. It, it just can't save you. It points out what's wrong. And so I'm going to read a couple of these background verses. Chapter 5, verse 16, where we were a few weeks ago. This is what Paul said a few weeks ago. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So you've got 
judgment, law, condemnation over here. And then he says, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Paul is saying, well, judgment goes over here in the sin category. If you're going to save yourself by the law, you're just going to get judgment. The law is just going to point out what's wrong. Another reference, chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We talked about that in context. Again, you have to read the whole chapter to clarify. He's not saying that the law makes sin happen where there wasn't sin, but the law magnifies, points, shows this trespass. It defines it. It rises up within us. We, we have sin in our heart that reacts to the law, and it increases, and it magnifies, and it shows it and clarifies it. He goes on in chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you're not under law, but you're under grace. So the implication is that if you are under law, sin will have dominion over you. Because you can't keep the law perfectly. Again, you will either react sinfully by lying and pretending you're keeping the law, or you'll react sinfully by running as far as you can the other way and not keeping it strongly. So he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, it's, it's not sin. It points out the sin. It's not sin. It points out the sin. By no means, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. We'll get into what that means a little later. That's the final commandment in the Ten Commandments. And so this is an example. He's saying, this one pointed it out. It showed to me what was wrong with my own heart. And we'll talk about that more in detail Uh, as we get on to the next section where he talks more about covetousness. But I want to use this illustration I've used before, and it's an x-ray. I broke uh, my ulna several years ago playing flag football. Never broke it playing tackle football, but I broke it playing flag football. And uh, this x-ray shows a crack in the bone. I had a, you know, intense pain in my arm, so I go to the doctor wondering if maybe it's broken because my arm had never hurt that bad before, Right? And so I go to the doctor, and the doctor shows me the x-ray, and he says, yes, indeed, your arm is broken. Did that heal me? No. It just showed me that I was broken. And that's the kind of thing that the law does for us. It diagnoses what's wrong, but it doesn't fix us. What healed my arm was this magic regenerative power that God had put within me, right? You doctors know a little more about it. I don't understand how it works, but God made our bodies to grow. And so if you line the bone back up in a straight line, it'll grow back straight. If you don't line it back up, it'll grow back crooked, but it's going to grow. Now, the analogy starts to fail, right? Because you actually have to ask, spiritually speaking, for that regenerative power to be at work within you. When it comes to our bones, it's just there. That's how God made us, right? It's just there in our bodies, The x-ray can't fix you. It's the power at work within you that actually heals and restores. The x-ray shows you that something is broken. Spiritually speaking, the law says you're broken. Here's the standard of righteousness. You're not meeting the standard of righteousness. Jesus and his regenerative power within us is what heals us. And the Bible makes it real clear. All we have to do is trust. All we have to do is ask, and he will begin to work within us. He'll put his spirit within us to restore and to mend and to heal what is broken in you. So application-wise, what what do we do with this? The law points out sin. Well, what we do with this is we recognize the limited use that the law has. 
not saying the law is bad. It's a gift. We'll get to that at the end. The law is actually good. It's a righteous, holy, beautiful thing that God gave us, but it can't save you. It can't regenerate you. It can't heal you. All it can do is show what's wrong. I'm reading a book, rereading a book that I read about 10 years ago. It's called Love Walked Among Us. It's one of the best Christian books I've ever read. It's by Paul Miller. If you want to understand the Gospels more and how Jesus interacted with people, I would highly recommend this to you. Fantastic book where he just makes observations from the Gospels, and then he talks about what does that look like in our daily life to love people the way Jesus loved people. And one of the discoveries that the author comes to is that when we are fixated on law, that blocks our ability to have compassion for other people. We don't love people well when we're fixated on law as our Savior and as their Savior. We're leading them away from the saving power of Jesus. We're not showing compassion on them when we deal in law. And so he uses three phrases to clarify that. The first one he uses is judging. Uh, When you are judging people, you cannot be showing compassion on them, right? Now, I'm sure this never happens uh, in your marriage or in your relationships, but sometimes in my relationship, I want to point out to people what they've done wrong. I want to point out what is broken in someone. I want to be like the law and say, hey, you're not in line with my perfect standard of righteousness, right? Which, of course, is hideous because I'm not perfect. I have the same problem. I have a uh, plank coming out of my eye when I go to pull a speck out of someone else's eye. So Paul Miller helpfully points out that when we're judging people, we're not showing compassion on them, right? It's blocking our ability to, to look and to listen. We get preoccupied with self and how well we are doing it. Now, as, the, now is Paul saying that nothing's right and wrong and we should have no standard of sin and morality? That's not where Paul Miller is going in this book, and that's not where I'm going, and that's not where the Apostle Paul is going either. But when we think the law can save us, then we want to apply the law on other people, and it's not saving them. It's just saying, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken. That's not saving. That's diagnosing what's wrong. The other thing that Miller points out in his book is self-righteousness. So what happens is we start to believe that we're keeping the law ourselves, and so then that blocks our ability to show compassion to people because we start to think, well, if you would just be like me, everything would be all right. You ever done that? Maybe I'm just way more judgmental than you people are. I do that sometimes. I, just, I, I come to people with self-righteousness instead of coming to them with compassion. Where I look and I listen, I sympathize with what's wrong, and I try to understand the problem, and then try to help them to find help through Jesus. Instead, I'm like, hey, I've, I've got it together. Why don't you get it together like me? So then self-righteousness as well can be a way that we use the law in an improper way. And then finally, he talks about the idea of legalism. Legalism is, is the term that we use to say, I think I'm saved by keeping these laws. And of course, when we do that, we are ultimately lying because none of us keep God's absolutely perfect righteous standards. We're, we're always forgetting something. We're always breaking something. As James says, if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. But legalism says, well, really, it's seven commandments, and I keep them, and let's not talk about the other ones. Just look at me and how, how good I am and how well I'm keeping the laws. And then we apply that to other people, and we, we bring our sickness to them instead of actually helping them find healing in Jesus. It's not compassion, but it's judging, and it's pointing out sin instead of pointing them to the Savior. Okay, we'll continue to move on here to show the next thing that Paul unfolds is that the law energizes sin. And this, I think, is the most controversial place 
in this section of Scripture. Maybe not the most uh, controversial, but one of the most controversial. Because this can sound like we're saying that the law makes sin or creates sin or um, gives life to sin where there is no life at all. And I think really it's better to understand it as sin in its sinfulness bows up to law. You know the word bow up, right? Like, like powers up, try, tries to overpower law. So sin, because it's sinful, tries to fight with law and gets worse and gets more ugly. Let's look at the text, see if this makes sense. Verse 8, he says it this way. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So he starts to talk about sin as if it's this monster, this power of its own. And Paul often talks about it this way. Sin seized an opportunity through the commandment. So the commandment, the law comes, God's standard comes in, and sin grabs that as just one more opportunity to sin. It reacts. It is awakened. It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So what is coveting or covetousness? I said earlier, it's the last commandment Paul said. I didn't know what it was until the law said, don't do it. Then I discovered what it meant. Um, Covetousness is desiring something that's not yours. And so most, all the Ten Commandments are more external things that you could kind of fake uh, or you could look like you're keeping all of them. Paul was the most strict uh, sect of Jews where he was very vigorous at keeping the law. And so this commandment particularly helped Paul to see, and I think it helps all of us to see where we fall short. Because this commandment is more of a heart commandment. It says, you're not to want anything that's not yours. So it shows us, you know what, I can be acting like and pretending that I'm keeping the law out here, but still there's something wrong in my heart. The word in Greek is, is epithumia, which could be literally translated as over desire. And so we talk about this word a lot in context of lusts, desires, and idolatry, because idolatry, having a God other than God, is when you want something in an ultimate way. And so you have this over-desire for something, and you might have an over-desire for pleasure or for relationships or for money, and when you have that over-desire for something, what you're doing is you're turning it into a savior. You're saying, this is something I must have. I can't live without it. So in our own lives, we have to think about what are those things that I say are ultimate and that my life can't succeed without them? Well, those by definition then are your gods. And those are the things you covet and you have an over-desire for. You have this, I must have it reaction. And so Paul says that sin within us seizes the opportunity through the commandment and produces in us all kinds of covetousness. So the, just more covetousness starts rising up within me. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now again, dead doesn't necessarily mean absolutely no life in a scientific sense, but, but the word in Greek and in a lot of the literature of the time could mean dormant, right? It's just kind of laying there playing possum, you might say, if you're from the country, right? It's kind of acting dead or it's sleeping or it's just not, it's not active. It's not energized, which is why I use the word energized here. Um, sin is then awakened. He goes on and he says it this way, verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And so I think the best way to understand this, again, commentators disagree on how to interpret Romans 7. So I encourage you to study this more on your own. I think the simplest way to understand this is Paul saying, there's a sense in which I thought everything was cool. Like I thought my life was good. I thought I was doing okay. I was alive. 
And then, and then I realized how dead I really am. I was once alive, thinking everything was okay apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I realized how bad things really were. When I saw the righteous and perfect standards of the law, I was convicted and broken. Verse 10, he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And so in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God says, if, if you do what's right, there's life there. There's goodness in keeping my law. So again, Paul's confirming that. He's going to end in verse 12 confirming that. There's goodness in doing what God says. There's life there. The problem is there's death at work within us. And that external goodness of the law that promises life actually shows us how dead we really are. And so he says in verse 11, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So here's the nuanced language. Paul repeats it. So let's, let's hang out on this for a second because in all this confusion, he's repeated a phrase twice. So what has he repeated twice? In verse 8 and verse 11, he says, Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, right? And so what he's pointing out here is that sin is the culprit. Sin is the bad guy. Your sin, my sin, sin kills us, but it works in this triangle with God's perfect and holy and righteous law. So there's this interesting sense in which God's law is perfect and good and righteous and holy, and yet sin grabs hold of it, and it's like the gun we kill ourselves with, in a sense. So there's a sense in which the law is a part of that death that occurs spiritually in our life, but it's not because the law itself is death. It's not because the law itself is sin. But sin, in its evil and uh, deathward motion, grabs hold of law and uses it. But the beautiful thing is, if you remember in Romans chapter 6, God told us that part of our hope is that the old us died, right? If I'm a sinner and if you're a sinner and if I'm hurting people and if I'm not good, essentially, in my heart, the old me has to die. And so what Christianity says is that by faith in Jesus, the old you dies. You died with Christ, and you have risen to new life. And so there's a sense in which this death is a good kind of death. It's like a ministry of death that helps speed along that process. And so we realize we can't save ourselves. We die to trying to save ourselves, and we rise to new life with Christ as the only one who can save us. So again, there's nuance here, and if, you, if you're just going to read one sentence or one verse, you're going to get confused about what Paul is trying to say. Is the law good? Yeah, the law's good. Does it bring death? Yeah, it brings death. Well, it's really sin that's killing us, but it's the law used in that process to kill us, right? Because it shows us what is deeply wrong with us. So here's an illustration that I thought might be helpful um, from the movie The Hobbit. Anybody seen the movie The Hobbit? Um, or the movies, I guess there were three of them, right? I think I, I fell off at some point. I didn't finish it. But Bilbo, I read the book, okay? I read the book. Bilbo is this little hobbit guy. And, and just for those of you that aren't into fantasy literature and don't know, a hobbit is this fantasy creature that's a little person with hairy feet. I think that basically summarizes. They like to smoke pipes and hang out and sing songs in the grass and stuff. So cool guys. And so part of the story is that there are these little people that get caught up in a big adventure. So there's some spiritual symbolism in the books. The guy is writing from a generally Christian perspective, the guy that writes the stories. So there's this idea of a little person who's powerless getting caught up in the fight against evil. 
which is kind of like you and me, right? We're, we're kind of nobodies, we're kind of little people, but God is, is bringing us into his fight against evil in the world. And there's this one scene where Bilbo, who is little and sneaky and also has a magic ring that can make him invisible, again, a little side part of the story, um, which, you know, that, that happens in every story, right? Ring that makes you invisible. So he has this ring that makes him invisible. He's sneaking in to steal back treasure that the dragon had stolen from, yes, a band of dwarves. I know it's, it's getting more complicated. But just focus here, okay? I've got a picture, and this is a picture of the dragon, his eye coming open underneath the piles and piles and piles of gold, right? Because that's what dragons like to do. They kill people, steal their, steal their gold, and then they, they just like sleep in it. They roll around in it, right? Like Scrooge McDuck, I guess. And so Bilbo is the good guy in the story, but he wakes up the dragon who then kills a bunch of people, right? Okay, so maybe this isn't the best illustration in the world, but Paul's saying the law is a good guy. The law is a good guy, but it wakes up the bad guy, and all kinds of havoc comes, comes loose, right? The dragon goes killing people. All kinds of things come apart. And so we struggle with how to categorize it. Paul continually through the last few chapters has said, the law is over here in this system of living that is to be under sin. The law is something that God gives, and so it's holy and righteous and good, and it shows us what is good, but it can't actually pull us out of this system of sin. It can't actually pull us out of my self-obsession with self, right? If I'm obsessed with self, and I look at someone that says, be good, love other people, I'm like, no, I'm obsessed with self, right? That standard of be good, love other people can't force me to love other people. Only death and rebirth can do that. And so the law is a part of that process by which we die to self. We recognize how bad we really are and how much we need a Savior. We need Jesus to save us. Jesus kept the law for us. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He was the one who was holy and righteous and good. And so that, well, I want to stop with this question and we'll look at the final point about the law being good. Going back to covetousness. Has the law done that work in your heart that it did in Paul's heart? People like to debate, is Paul talking about himself? Is he talking about every man? Well, I would argue that he may be talking about himself, but it also has application to every man. Because covetousness is wanting something that doesn't belong to us and thinking that that something can make us better and make us whole instead of running to Jesus for that. So if you come to recognize what you covet, what you desire more than anything else, if you allowed the law to do that work in your own heart, or are you still pretending that everything is okay? And my prayer is that by seeing this in Paul's life, you'd begin to see how the law can do that in your own life as well. How the law can uncover and show, man, I've been, I've been wanting these other things, but the gospel is telling me that I should want Jesus because he's really the only, the only one that can save me. He's really the only one that can take care of me. When we want something that Jesus tells us is not going to save us, what we're saying is, I'm not going to trust you, Jesus. I'm trusting these other things instead of you. So has the law done that work in your heart to uncover that? Or you are coveting, you are over-desiring other things instead of desiring God himself. My prayer for you is that, that you would come to that place of brokenness. 
And again, it's, it's a painful process, right? Paul, Paul's describing here death and brokenness. If you've been diagnosed with a terrible disease, that will forever be branded in your mind as one of the worst memories in your life, right? But you would never find healing in, unless you were diagnosed first. And that's what the law does. The law says there's something wrong. There's something very wrong. There's something deeply wrong within you. The law awakens that sin, shows it for what it is, shows us how, how bad things really are, and shows us how much we need a Savior. So finally, Paul is saying, but, but the law is good. The law really is good. It really is righteous. He says this in verse 12. So, so, because of what I've just said about the death that the law helps to bring in our life, the law is actually good. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. It really is good. It brings death, and that's good. And then in verse 13, which we're going to get to next week, but I just want to give us a little preview here. In verse 13, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? Or literally, did the good become death in my life? Well, no, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law brought death. Is, is the law? Well, the, death, the law is not really death, but it was used in the process by sin to bring death. And again, we, we actually find hope through death. We baptize someone during the earlier service. When we baptize people, we're saying the old person died and the new person has risen to new life. It's a symbol of death and rebirth. Paul said in chapter 6, our hope is that by faith we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Our hope is that he took the penalty of sin upon himself on the cross and he gives us his righteousness. That we died to that old way of trying to save ourselves by our flesh. Trying to save ourselves by running from the law or trying to save ourselves by lying and pretending we're keeping the law perfectly. We died to, to both of those ways of trying to save ourselves by our flesh and we've risen to Jesus as our Savior. He's the one that can save us. He's the one that can fulfill the law for us. There's another question. How are we doing on time? We're doing okay. All right, I can keep you all longer. There's another question that commentators bring up, and, and that is when Paul's talking about the law as an alternative form of salvation, is he talking about the very Jewish Mosaic covenant side of the law, like circumcision and keeping the Sabbath rules and keeping the feasts and all those kind of what are often called the boundary markers of Jewishness? Is that the essence of what he's talking about? Or is he talking about this idea of I can be good on my own? And I would say he's talking about both. It's really clear that he's talking about both. He's making a legal uh, covenant case to the Jews who are all worked up about those covenant specifics from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He's making a very specific case there that that covenant has been fulfilled through Jesus and you're no longer bound by that covenant. And that covenant was fulfilled by Jesus so that we could fulfill its ultimate purposes for us to love God and love other people, right? The righteous moral fulfillment of that covenant, the core of all that stuff and all the symbols of the sacrificial system and the symbols of Sabbath and the symbols of the feasts, all of those were symbolizing and showing us ultimately God wants us to be righteous. He wants us to be good, which leads us to the other understanding of law that it's just essentially talking about trying to be good. And you can't save yourself by trying to be good. 
both are true. You can't save yourself by keeping the Jewish covenant system perfectly because no one ever perfectly kept it because part of it is being perfectly righteous. And you can't save yourself if you're a, a Gentile like me that doesn't have a Jewish background and you're just thinking in terms of general morality. You also can't save yourself through general morality. So I think Paul makes both arguments and he weaves those together because they're both connected because they're both ways of trying to save ourselves, right? So if you have no idea what the Jewish regulations are and you're just trying to save yourself by being a good guy, Paul says, you can't save yourself by being a good guy. You can't save yourself by the law of morality. You got to trust Jesus to be good enough for you. And if you're getting caught up in, in Jewishness saying, well, there's all this great stuff in the Old Testament. There is. All the stuff that illuminates and makes our faith deeper and more understandable. There is. It's there. It's beautiful. But it can't save you. It points us to our need for a Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So both of those are ways of trying to save ourselves. And when Paul talks about saving yourself through works of the law, as he said earlier in Romans, and he talks a lot about in Galatians, both, both kinds of thinking apply. So here's another illustration of the law. It's a flashlight. It's a flashlight. In the ancient world, of course, they didn't have battery-operated flashlights. They had lamps, right? And so in Psalm 119 and in other places in the Old Testament, we're told that the word is like a lamp. It shows us where to go. It shows us what right and wrong is. It illuminates for us God's standards. Can it save us? No, it can't, it can't save us. But it shows us what, what right and wrong is. It is holy. It is righteous. It is good. So, so go to the law to understand God's standards. Go to the law to understand what is right and what is true. Go to the law to understand better what morality means in a world that's, that's topsy-turvy and doesn't even believe in standards of morality anymore. The law is helpful for that. But don't go to the law to save you. Don't go to the law to be the thing that pulls you out of your sin problem. The law will only show you how deep you are down in that rabbit hole. It'll just show you more and more how much you fail, but Jesus will save you. Jesus will pull you out of that hole. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us here. So I think one of the best images that's helped me when I think about how the law is good, but it's not the thing that saves me, is this image I got from a book by John Lynch. It's called The Cure. It's an older copy of it called True Face that a lot of us read many years ago. But he gives this image, which I think is just a helpful image to think about. We often think about us here, our sin is kind of like this barrier, and then Jesus is over there, right? And so we think, I've got to, by my flesh, by my strength, pull myself up from my bootstraps, start cleaning up this mess of sin in my life, right? I've got to start being good so I can fight my way to Jesus. And, and Christianity is actually the opposite of that. It says, no, Jesus fought his way to you. Jesus left heaven and he came to you. Jesus left perfection. He came into this world. Jesus took the penalty of all that sin on his own shoulders on the cross so that he died a sacrificial death for you. So you don't fight your way to Jesus through all that sin. You are stuck in the sin, in quicksand, and Jesus fights his way to you. And so the image, when we're looking at sin in our life, and when we're looking at the law that shows us how much sin there is in our life, the image that is helpful is recognizing, no, Jesus fought his way to you, and by faith, his arm is around you now. Jesus loves you. He's with you. And he says, we'll, we'll work on this together. And that's what gives me hope. In the John Lynch story, he's like, yeah, Jesus is there. He's got his arm around you. And he's like, well, that is a lot of sin, right? But we'll work on it together. So the law 
clarifies, yeah, that is a lot of sin, but Jesus, by his grace, is putting his arm around us. He's saying, I paid the penalty already for that sin, so I'm going to put my arm around you, and we're going to work through that together. But I'm with you now. You're not fighting through that to get to me. I fought through it to get to you. And then now we'll start living out the reality of what it means to belong to me. I think that's where our hope lies. The way that Paul says it in Galatians, I think, is helpful, clarifying the relationship that we have to the law through Jesus. I'll just read this, and this is where we'll end. Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. We're under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you're going to try to save yourself by law, you're cursed because the law says you're cursed if you don't perfectly keep all of these requirements. Paul goes on and says, It's evident that no one is justified by God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them, right? So the law says, all right, just do it. And we don't. We fail. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the law says, "You're, you're cursed if you don't keep every requirement of the law. The law also says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus came and he kept every requirement of the law. And then he hanged on a tree for us. He hung on a cross. He became the curse that we deserved by the law. The law tells us we don't keep it, we're cursed. Jesus became that curse for us. That's our hope. Our hope is in Jesus. And by faith, we trust in him. And he puts his arm around you and he says, all right, let's go. Let's do this. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for coming to us through Jesus. We thank you that it's not us coming to you by law, because if that was the story, we, we would get all the fame and we would get all the glory. But this is a story about how good you are, how kind you are, how gracious you are, how you are our hero. And you took the weight of our sin to come to us. And so we pray that you would remake us because of that that we would become the kinds of people that actually show compassion, that actually love others because we realize we can't keep the standards of the law ourselves. So, Father, help us to never back away from those perfect standards. Help us to never say that the law is bad or that the standards don't count anymore, but help us to see that you're our hope and that the only way we ever keep any of the standards is because that hope is that work within us, regenerating us from the inside out. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.